Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Good morning. Welcome. Glad that you are here. If you're on the Klein campus, if you're the Woodlands campus, if you're online, however it is you're here, we're glad. And wherever you are in your faith journey, we're glad that you're here to take the next step today. So take your Bibles and we're going to go to the book of Esther. And if you need a Bible in all of our rooms, the ushers are going to come down and they're going to have a stack of them in their arms and they'll be glad to let you borrow one. You just raise your hand and they'll be glad to pass you one if you uh, didn't bring a Bible along and you want to follow. We're going to be in Esther 5, 6, and 7. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. So I'm not going to start off by reading the whole section, but just uh, sort of talking a little bit about it, and then we'll touch in um, <clears throat> with the actual text in just a little while. So let's remember uh, in this story of Esther that we've been doing that comes to an end t- today, we've been talking about God's chosen, p- chosen people, the Jewish people. And you remember they're living in exile off in the land of Persia, that's today called Iran. And they lived under the reign of King Xerxes of Persia. It's about 500 years before Jesus. And through a roundabout series of serendipitous uh, providential moments, a young, beautiful Jewish gal, probably older teenager, maybe 20, named Esther, has been chosen to be the queen of Persia, to be King Xerxes' wife. Now, she was reared by a a man whose name was Mordecai. He was her guardian in the absence of her parents, the Bible says. And Mordecai has word of a terrible anti-Semitic plan that has been hatched by the villainous Haman in this story. Haman was King Xerxes' chief of staff, and he was determined to wipe out all the Jews. And so Mordecai has sent word to his daughter-like cousin, Queen Esther, inside the palace saying, Esther, you've got to intervene. You've got to do something because this is a terrible thing that's going on and the king is oblivious to what's going on and and don't you think just because you're the queen that you'll be spared what's going to happen to us Jews. Remember, you are one of us. Esther explains, but Mordecai, you don't just go sauntering in to talk to the king any old time you want. He hasn't called for me in 30 days. If you just go walking in, He could say, be in a bad mood and just say, off with your head. I mean, we saw what he did with the last queen. To which Mordecai speaks those famous words that Pastor Dan took us through last week. Where he says, Esther, has it not occurred to you that all of these things have happened that you might be the queen for such a time as this? Esther, God put you in place for this moment, you're the only one who can do anything. 
So now do what you were made to do. Do what God has put you in place to do. She says, well, pray and fast for me three days. And on the third day, she goes in, approaching the, the king, uninvited. And to her great relief, he holds out his scepter in a gesture of blessing, welcoming her. He says, come in. What can I do for you, Queen Esther? She, knowing we haven't seen each other in 30 days, you know, before I dump on you the news that you've been duped by your chief of staff, maybe we ought to just kind of get to know each other a little bit again, kind of get this relationship reawakened. She says, well, if you would do anything for me, then in that case, what I would like you to do is I'd like you to come to a banquet. I'm preparing for you, and I'd like you to bring Haman, your chief of staff. It'll just be us, and we'll have a meal together. Well, King Xerxes is like, that sounds great. Who doesn't like some good home cooking? He's like, hey, tell Haman we're going to go eat with the queen. And so <clears throat> there uh, they go, and uh, as Esther was surely hoping would happen, the king still receptive to her uh, initial approach, asks again, now Esther, what is it that was on your mind? What would you like? You name it, I'll give it to you. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Esther, she's got this knack for timing, though. She, she still doesn't sense the time's quite right. She holds back, doesn't really tell them what's on her mind yet. She said, well, if that's the case, if you'd give me anything you want, then what I'd really like is for the both of you to come back to another banquet that I'll have tomorrow for you. So they're like, great, okay, we'll see you tomorrow, Esther. And so <clears throat> they go off, and Haman, the chief of staff, you just picture him walking into the dark of night, strutting from the palace, breathing the fresh air of night, feeling puffed up as ever because he was a proud man. You picture him just, just walking through the city, telling people here and there, yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you did for dinner tonight, but I had dinner in the palace with the king and the queen, just the three of us. <laughs> and we had such fun, we decided we are going to do it again tomorrow. And so... <clears throat> So proud, so smug he was until he comes across Mordecai. He really doesn't care for Mordecai one bit. And he has no awareness at this point that she's related to the queen, Esther. Now, why does he hate Mordecai so much? Because Mordecai could see through Haman. He saw him for the phony that he always was. And subsequently, Mordecai just could never bow himself. He just would never bow when Haman went walking by. Everybody else bowed because he was an important person, second only to the king. But Mordecai just, he wouldn't bow. And it galled Haman that he wouldn't bow. Haman tells his wife and his friends this, you see in chapter 5 in verse 13. It gives, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He was so furious. Now, what he does, we're going to look at momentarily, but I want to stop and just look a little bit further into Mordecai's, into Haman's, rather, uh, pride, and see if we might just pull off the side of the road and make an observation or two about pride in our own lives. What can we learn from this story about pride? Well, for one thing, pride is the sin that hides itself from us better than any other sin. It's sort of like B.O. It's, it's always easier to tell when somebody else has it than when you have it, right? And it kind of slips in on us, pride does, and it evades our attention. We don't realize it's, it's, it's really all over us. It's not like any other, like adultery. You, you know if you're having adultery. I mean, who, who, who goes, 
what? You're not my wife. You know, you know if you're doing that. And, and you know if you're stealing or if you're embezzling. You don't open up your bank account. And, oh, my gosh, how did those $300,000 get there? You know, you know. But pride, it's different. Pride can sneak in on us, and we don't see it sneaking in and contaminating us. It can evade our attention. But it doesn't evade other people's attention. It makes everybody else in the whole room sick except ourselves. And so that's why they call it the carbon monoxide of sin. Because it's able to kill you without your even waking up to realizing what's got you. For many years, I never realized how much of it I had in my own life. Because um, life, it always come easy for me, really. Uh, I mean, I came from a, a great family and made good grades. Was musically talented. I wasn't particularly athletic, but didn't really care. I mean, I could do as much as I wanted to do. Had plenty of friends. <clears throat> and went off to a good school and, and eventually found my calling to become a pastor and started a church, and even that went well. Eventually got married happily. And <clears throat> I, looking back now, realize how often I looked at other people whose lives didn't apparently come as, as easily as mine had. And in my smugness, I... I've got to confess, I, I sometimes thought, gosh, I don't know why you make life so hard for yourself. It's really just very easy. Just, I mean, look at me. And then God gave us children. And, <laughs> but <clears throat> trust me, I'm telling you, when you give in to the smugness of pride, you're painting a target on your back, uh, which invites the Lord to do something. To humble us. Why? Because 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition to, to pride. But he gives grace to the humble. It, uh, pride is, after all, what cast Lucifer out of heaven. It's what cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Right? And it'll be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. Yeah, so I was a proud guy through my teens, through my 20s, much of my 30s. And then I became a parent. And uh, you've, if you've been here for any length of time, you know I, there's nothing I love more than being a dad. And I love my boys. But I'm telling you, nothing in my life has leveled the playing field like being a parent. Over the years, we noticed uh, that all the normal techniques just worked great for all the other people, but they weren't working in our home. And Suzanne and I sometimes would look at each other and in private say with exasperation, do we just stink as parents? And we wondered, why is this so much harder for us than it seems to be for so many of our friends? And after we were invited to leave one school, one of our sons was diagnosed with some special needs, which was actually very helpful for us and enabled us to connect some dots. And several years later, the other son was then diagnosed with his own share of, of learning differences. And so for years, we have been driving all around the city for doctors and therapists and, tutor, uh, and tutors and paying a king's ransom for special schools with very small class ratios. And all of this has become our new normal. But I'll tell you something that's happened in me through it. I've developed a heart for ministries like our ministry that we call Open Gates for families that have children as special as ours. I'm telling you, I wouldn't have ever paid any attention to a ministry like Open Gates till that. Something happened in my heart along the way and now we connect near instantly with other families who have their own challenges 
And at times, uh, Suzanne and I still say, why does it have to be so challenging? Couldn't it be easier? But anybody who knows the two of us and knew the two of us a decade ago would say, oh, the war lines are a lot humbler people than they used to be. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever in your own heart said, why can't he just get it together? What is wrong with her? Those people over there, what is their problem? You realize when you're standing over here and you're saying that over there, that's your pride talking. Or in your workplace, if you're inclined to sometimes say, if not to anybody else, maybe to yourself, well, you know, I've been here a long time and I've brought a lot to the company and I know the rules say this or that, but I'm a little bit above that at this point. You realize that's your pride talking. Or if you're working on your taxes and you're like, the IRS is rules, I'm telling you, it just gets more and more complicated and arduous process and oh for the good old days and you know then you start feeling nostalgic and I think I'll just feel them out the way I would have in the good old days you realize that's just the rationalizing of your pride saying I'm above this or maybe you say you know if I want to look at porn from time to time most guys do it anyhow, and that's my business. It's my life, and I don't care what other people do. I don't care what God says. You realize that's pride. All of these sorts of thought patterns are just practical manifestations of pride, inflating ourselves and minimizing other people or standards around us. And it saturates our society, I'm telling you. Especially in the world of politics these days. Through social media in particular. It's him. It's her. It's them. Those losers over there. If we could just get rid of them, then the world would finally be a better place. But wait a second. If followers of Christ is what we are, then we know that all of us stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. That we're all sinners in need of his grace. Not just those people over there are the sinners. No, you and I are as well, right? And so that means conservative people and liberal people and people in between. All of us have our own preferred sets of sins that we say are okay, but not those other people's kind of sins. But don't you realize the seeds of destruction are sown into us all because we're all saturated with pride. And so you can't even watch a whole cycle of cable news these days without feeling like you just need to shower to rinse off from the accusations and the, and the condemnations that people are lobbing at each other about one another, right? And at the root of it all, it's, it's pride. And it's destructive. The Bible says very clearly, if you work to build yourself up, sooner or later, God will find a way to help you become humble, right? So you can either humble yourself or you can wait for God to help you to be humbled. After all, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor, Proverbs 29 says. Now, before we get back to the story of Haman, I wanna say one more thing about pride. It's this absorption with ourself, yes. And it mostly takes the form of superiority. But you should realize something, and this is something I gotta give credit to Tim Keller for helping me to see in my study this week. Pride also manifests itself in the form of inferiority. Sort of an inverted kind of pride. You say, well, what is inferiority sort of pride? What does that look like? That's when you're really down on yourself. That's when you don't like yourself. That's when you don't like how you look. That's when you, like how not, you don't like how you're doing. You're never good enough. You're always beating yourself up. Oh, you're still absorbed with yourself, doing all the comparison with others and all, but you just come out on the short end every time. I remember having a friendship like this for a while, some years ago. 
And every time we'd get together, I mean, we'd hardly be seated for lunch and he would start in talking about everything that was going on in his life that was just so bad and so down and so terrible and the world wasn't fair and on and on and on. It was a saga, saga, saga. It just, <clears throat> same song, 20th verse. And I'm not saying that all of our lives don't have saga moments and, and moments where we really need a friend to pick us up like Ecclesiastes 4.10 says. We do. But I'm just telling you, it's sometimes there's a problem if that's always the way, the, and that's what always it was like every time I I was with him. It was always all about him the whole time. Every time the spotlight was on him. Well, being a pastor, I kind of learned how to, so I'd listen and, you know, and, and then occasionally I'd say, well, you know, have you made a, have you thought about this? Or maybe what if you were to try this and make a suggestion? Or, oh, he didn't want suggestions. He didn't want solutions. He wanted attention. He wanted the spotlight on him. Don't do anything that would give me any reason to change the spotlight or to move it because I like it where it is right now wear you out I'm telling you one day I was pondering and, and I realized you know he's no different than the stereotypical high school athlete who walks around showing people how big and strong and awesome he is it's just flipped upside down the spotlight is still totally on him it's just on him in a moping sort of way talking about how bad everything is you ever known anybody like that you ever been anybody like that? So see, pride can take a superiority form or it can be inverted and it can take an inferiority form as well. Either way, God stands opposed to it. It's this absorption with ourself, pride is. Either which way you, you go at it. Absorbed with thoughts like, what are they thinking about me? How am I looking? Are they respecting me enough? God says, no, we've got to move beyond this. Well, Haman, he couldn't move beyond it. He just couldn't be content being the number two guy in all of Persia, second only to the king. Oh, no, he wanted everyone's accolades. He wanted everyone's respect and everyone's attention, including Mordecai the Jew, it says. And so he swaggers and he bluffs and he gets others to act as buttresses for the shaky ego created by his inner pride, just like you and I do ourselves when we're empty of God in our souls, left with nothing to fill us up but ourselves. So look at chapter 5, verse 14. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to Haman, well, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 75 feet and have the king and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it and then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Look at his response. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Now, meanwhile, the same night, the king had a touch of insomnia. He's not able to sleep. And so he asks his servants to read him a book. I guess if you're the king, you don't have to read your own books. And so he says, read to me from, read to me from the annals of the king, which is kind of funny in itself because it was basically a chronicling of everything in the day in the life of the king every single day. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. So essentially what he was saying is, read me that story about um, me, okay? And so, <clears throat> so they're reading. Now, here we see the unmistakable providential hand of God because where do they turn in the book to start reading. Well, how about here? And they start reading at a chapter that describes something that happened four years prior. What happened? Well, there was an assassination plot. And apparently, the people that were going to kill King Xerxes were found out by a certain person 
who got word inside the palace and the plan was put down and those people were put out and the king was spared. Well, the king's like, well, that's pretty interesting. So who was the guy that did that? Who saved my life? And they said, oh, his name is Mordecai. He's like, okay, well, great. What did we ever do for this man, Mordecai, to honor him? And they said, well, said, we, didn't, we didn't ever do anything to honor Mordecai. He says, well, my heavens, we got to do something for this man. Because anybody who takes care to spare my life, we need to honor this man. Who's around here that could help me think of something nice that we could do for him? They said, well, Haman just came in. How about him? So Haman comes in the door. And Haman walks in. He has no idea about the bedtime story that the king was just being read. Haman's coming in to ask permission to impale Mordecai on a stake and raise him up 75 feet in the air to wave as a dead flag for the whole city to see. And at that point, before he can even ask permission to do it, the king says, Haman, I'm glad you're here. I need to ask you a question. So Haman... What would we do if we needed to really honor somebody? How would you show honor to someone these days? Well, Haman thinks to himself, well, who, who would the king want to honor more than moi? <laughs> so he answers, well, your highness, I would say, let the man be dressed in a royal robe, your royal robe. Now, you have to understand the significance of the robes. But, see, we don't get this in this day and time, but if you were several centuries ago, several thousand years ago in, in ancient times, the robe said everything about a, person, a person's love and trust and respect. And, and so when you put your robe on somebody, you were saying a lot. It was a big deal. It's parenthetically why back in uh, the last third of Genesis, you remember when Jacob, the father, puts his robe of many colors on his son Joseph, and the other 11 brothers are irate with envy. And it wasn't really the smartest thing to do as a dad, but it, he was communicating, you are my favored son. And, <clears throat> and, and it's also parenthetically why Several decades later, when Joseph has risen to power in Egypt now, second only to the Pharaoh, and he's going to usher all of Egypt and all of the Middle East through this seven-year famine. You remember what the Pharaoh does? It says the Pharaoh put his robe on Joseph. What's he doing? He was saying, I'm behind this guy. This is my man right here. I love this guy. I respect this guy. I trust this guy. You do whatever this guy says. And so Haman is thinking to himself, well, so king, if you were to ask me what we should do to honor somebody, I'm just thinking maybe you start by putting your robe on him. It's kind of sad because really when you think about it, Haman so desperate for approval respect. Um, he was surely thinking, if somebody as important as you, king, were to put your robe on me, then maybe finally all the other people would respect me and think highly about me at last. Haman continues. He's, he says, well, and so start with the robe. And then he says, put him on a horse, the horse that you have ridden king. And you should put a robe on the horse as well. In fact, you should put a crest on the horse. And then you should have a nobleman who will take the reins and who will walk the horse around the city as the person that you want to honor is riding along it with your robes. And <clears throat> you should ask that prince to holler something out. Well, what should he holler? He should holler out, thus shall it be done for anyone whom the king wishes to honor. And Haman's thinking, because whom else would the king want to honor like me? Okay, and so it's, at this point, this sleepless in Susa king, Xerxes, lurches up in his bed and he says, Haman, that is brilliant. That's exactly what I want you to do for Mordecai. <laughs> now, 
you just picture in this moment, Haman thinking, for Mordecai, the Mordecai that I was just coming to ask you if I could get him impaled and raised up 75 feet? Yes, that Mordecai, the one who saved my life. In fact, Haman, I want you to be the nobleman who takes the horse by your hand and you lead the horse around and you exclaim all that stuff that you were talking to me. That's brilliant, Haman. You're the guy to do it. What does Proverbs 16, 18 tell us? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman was falling. His fall had begun. He, he was going into a tailspin, and it's just going to get worse. And I'm sure Haman already sensed this is not going well, and it's only going to get worse because there's been a total reversal. He had tried to exalt himself, and now he's being brought low. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. After taking the horse around with Mordecai riding on it, verse 12, Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, and he told Zeresh, his wife, and his friends, everything that had happened to him, and his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. That was a wife who knew how to speak the truth. She could connect the dots. And <clears throat> it says, verse 14, when they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So there the three of them, Xerxes and Esther and Haman, old friends, could get together and have the second banquet. Now this point, the timing is right. God's providential hand has set everything perfectly in place. And as they're having their food together, the king asks a third time. So Queen Esther, once more, what is it that you wanted in the first place? I'm telling you anything you want, I'm gonna give it to you, up to half the kingdom. And now, Esther speaks. Verse 3 of chapter 7. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And she turns and says, oh, that would be your chief of staff, Haman, right there. And don't you know that all of the ambiance was just sucked out of the room in that moment? I always think this would be a perfect Southwest Airlines commercial moment right there. Want to get away? You know, Haman. <laughs> and the king is furious. The music has stopped. The wheel has come full circle, as Shakespeare said, verse 6. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out to the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where, the, where Esther was reclining. The king exclaims, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? Talk about irony upon irony. It's just compounding. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And in those days, you pretty well knew the party was over when they covered your face with a towel. <laughs> and then one of the servants, I love this part, Harbona, it says Harbona, off to the side, you just picture him, he hollers out, well, hey, you know, Haman built gallows 75 feet high to kill Mordecai, to which the king blurts out, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. And that's how the story of Haman ends, with appropriate justice being served, with the proud being brought low. Now, at this point, I know what any number of you are thinking. Right now you're thinking, okay, so what's the application point? What's, what's the take home for me? I mean, that's a good story. And the, okay, here it is. The, sto the, the point of the story is I got to be more humble. I don't want to be like Haman. I don't want to be proud. I got to work on this. In fact, that's, that's, that's really good. This is a good reminder, Pastor Ken. I need to work. I'm going to work on being a more humble person this week. 
Yeah, see, no, that's not it. I'll tell you why. Because you already knew that. You didn't come in here not knowing what you should be. You came in here knowing, now you may have forgotten, but even as we talk, you've been reminded of that. The problem isn't that you had to be reminded that you need to be more humble. The problem is you can't be that. You're not able. Oh, maybe you're able if you roll up your sleeves and try real hard. You're able to be humble maybe for an extra few minutes or maybe a couple of hours. But you can't just keep doing it on and on over and over day after day. Why? Because see, at our roots, we're all contaminated with this evil of pride. The Bible calls it sin. And the Bible says quite clearly it's repulsive to God. And there's only one thing that he can do with it, with this evil and this sin and this pride, and that is to kill it, to put it to death, which is quite bad news for us because we're inextricably bound up with our pride, with our ego. And so you put it to death, you're gonna put us to death as well. But, price ha- but sin has a price tag, and the price tag is death. And so you gotta pay the piper. All of us do. You and I have to pay that price for our sin ourselves. Or we have to find somebody who would be a willing, fitting substitute to pay that price for us. Someone who would take the hit for your sin and for my sin. And this is where the good news comes in. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? I'll tell you why. Because God looking down upon his human creation and seeing all of us are little Hamans. All of us have that seed of pride and sinfulness sown into our souls. And he realizing and looking down upon us in our fallen state that we could never turn it around on our own, that we would never be able to fix our problem of sinfulness and pride on our own. He devised a plan that was even even more profound than Esther's plan in this story. He sent his own son, Jesus, into this world to be our savior. He sent his own son who would live for 33 years on this earth, the life of sinless humility that you and I could never live so that he would thus qualify and be a fitting and an appropriate substitute for us so that at the end of those 33 years, he would go to the cross and he would die that death of punishment as our substitute, taking the hit for our sins that we might not have to take those that hit ourselves. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, which signifies to us all, if you link yourself to me, Jesus says, then you too will rise triumphant over sin and over death, and you can have life abundant and life everlasting, but you have to tether yourself to me, which is gonna take humility. You're gonna have to bow your knee to me, and you're gonna have to say, I want you, Jesus, to be my savior. I want what you did on the cross to count for me. Some of you are hearing this, and maybe for the first time, you're like, you know, this makes more sense than I ever thought it made before. In fact, I think maybe I need to sign up. I think I'm, I'm, whatever he's offering, I'm taking it. I want to accept that. Well, great. In a few moments, we're going to pray, and you can tell him that. You can commit your your life to him and, and make that trade and take him into your heart as your Savior. But more of you hearing my voice fall into a second category. You're like, yeah, I already did that. I, I trusted Jesus like three years ago. Some of you say I did it like 30 years ago. And I already did that. I've already trusted in Christ. I already wrote my little thing down and burned it on the cross and became a Christian. And, but the problem is I still got the pride. So what you got for me? Well, you and I, we're going to have to do something different. We're going to have to re-gospel ourselves. 
re-gospel ourselves. What does it mean to re-gospel ourselves? Were you saying I, I lost my salvation somewhere along the way and so I got to get saved again? No, I didn't say anything about losing your salvation. But I am saying if you've trusted in Christ, then you have life. What you've probably lost is your sight of what he did for you. See, I think that's what happens to most of us who are Christians. We come into our original faith with Jesus Christ. We're so touched by the good news. And we're like, he died for me? He did that for me? Are you kidding me? This is great news. And we're excited about it for a few weeks, maybe a few months. And, but then we go on in our lives and we start to forget about that. Doesn't mean that we're not still saved. Oh, we're saved. We're just forgetful. Now we're not remembering what he did on the cross for us. And so when I say we have to re-gospel ourselves, that's what I'm saying. We have to go back to what he came to this earth to do, to that day where he went to the cross and where he hung on that cross for you and for me. Because when you do that, I'll tell you what will begin to happen. Your heart will grow soft again and you'll realize, you know what? I am nothing. I'm a sinner. I am saved only by grace who, who do I think I am getting, off, getting all proud and like I got this whole thing figured out? I would be nothing if it weren't for Jesus. That's what I'm talking about when I say re-gospel. We have to go back in our minds and remember what the gospel is and what we so clearly understood when you first trusted in him because we're forgetful about that. And we have to go back not just to remember what he did. We have to remember who he was and who he is, this Jesus. Who was he? Who is he? Well, the Bible talks about Jesus being the, the humble servant. And you see that servanthood throughout his whole life. Our Savior was a servant. He, well, look at how he came into the world. Good heavens, did he come with a spotlight, with prominence and fanfare? No. He came into the world out in a stable in the middle of nowhere through a teenage obscure girl. That's a humble entry if I ever heard of one. So he was modeling this humility for us from the very start. And you look at his ministry, and all he continued to do was to serve other people. And he washed people's feet. And he healed people. And he restored people. And he gave them second chances and thirds and fourths and more. And so what I'm saying when we talk about regospeling ourselves, I'm saying we have to go back and remember what he did, and we have to go back and remember who he was and who he still is. Because I'm telling you, if you will do that, your heart will grow soft. It has no choice but to grow soft. Because there's no such thing as a proud Christian, that's an oxymoron. That's somebody who's putting two things together that they can't possibly go together because if we're in Christ, we are saved people. We are rescued people. And we didn't do it by ourselves. We did it only because of what he did and just by trusting in him and attaching ourselves and tethering ourselves to him by faith. It was he who saved us. And so there's only humble Christians, that's really the only flavor that we come in. And so if you've been feeling proud and you are a Christian, then maybe what you need most is just to be reawakened once again to the gospel. And maybe that's the take home for you. Because no matter who you are, no matter how important you are, I'm telling you, if it weren't for his grace, you wouldn't be here. And you know that's true. If it weren't for his grace, you wouldn't have had breath to get up out of bed and even be here today. But it's because of his grace that he gave to you that you are here. It's as we re-gospel ourselves, we'll remember, you'll remember, you're not God. There's only one God. We aren't God. And as you re-gospel yourself, you'll be ready to put on what Peter calls the clothes of humility or the, the overalls of humility. And it's important for us to keep those overalls of humility on 24-7 as Christians. Because it's, it's when we have those 
overalls of humility on, the clothing of humility, that we're able to give grace freely. It's in those overalls we're able to ask forgiveness, make amends readily. It's in those overalls that, that we're able to even laugh at ourselves cheerfully. So turn to him, Jesus Christ, our humble Savior, because he is the only one who can save you from your pride. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book of Esther that we could study this month for the lessons that are still so totally relevant for our lives because even as that man Haman was just so saturated in his pride, oh, it's easy for us to point to other people who, who remind us of Hayden, Haman, but we forget, oh, we've got plenty of Haman in ourselves. Each of us does. Lord, forgive us. And my prayer, Lord, today is first in that category of people who are here who maybe they've never said yes to Jesus in the first place. And even as we were talking today, it just kind of made sense in a way it never made sense before. And they are even right now saying, I, I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want what he did on the cross to count for me. You just tell him that right now silently, even as we pray. You just... You just tell him that in your own heart right now. Ask him to come into your heart and to flood into your soul with the fullness of his Holy Spirit and to wash you clean from your sin and to repurpose you and to restore you and to bring you to new life and to face you forward so that you might learn now to walk in obedience to him, following him. And for the rest of us who just needed maybe a little front-end alignment today, of our own souls. Lord, won't you help us to keep this lesson of Haman in mind, but not to go charging out with resolve just to try to be humbler people because that's a dead-end street. It ends in a few hours at best. Help us to keep our eyes on you because if we'll focus on you, Jesus, that will always reawaken us to the right posture for our lives, and that's the posture of dependence and humility because there's only humble Christians walking around in your kingdom. Help us to be those people, Lord, as we go into this week. We pray all of these things in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Pastor Ken, who just concluded our series on Esther by talking about the perils of pride. And so pride, really, from the first week, we see it in the in first King session Xerxes. in King Xerxes, yeah. and then we see it again in his right-hand yeah. man, Haman. Um, and so we talked a again about the dangers of pride. Um, and so there were quite a few questions that came in. Um, a couple of people asked this question and I think it's good, um, a good question to understand. So as a believer, as a Christian, where does being proud cross over into pridefulness? So sure. what's the difference between being prideful mm -hmm. and being proud? proud? Right. Well, it's a fine line. So I don't know who the questioner was, but let's suppose uh, they have some children. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we parents say, I'm so proud of you, um, which I think is a very important thing to say to our children because they do need encouragement and, and, and because you genuinely are feeling that. I didn't think that's where the problem is. I think the problem, clearly you start to cross the line when uh, now my esteem 
and my identity is hinging on their achievements or their accomplishments. And now I'm going to you mm -hmm. and saying, let me tell you about my child. Okay, now this has turned into something that has clearly got some, uh, so, some, some sin mm -hmm. on it. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that can be helpful. I think there is probably a good deal of subjectivity. Sometimes a question like this, we, we, we just want it kind of nice and, mm -hmm. Black and white. put it in a box. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we can, mm -hmm. some of these things are kind of oozy. You know, that's interesting that you talked about how pride can show up in superiority or inferiority. inferiority. So I would imagine the same, like sure. if you're hurt because your child's not performing yeah, well, right. and in the reverse, there's some sense of pride sure. that you, you need to be And if you just keep feeling. going on and on and on, these people are doing my child wrong. Okay, maybe you, your kiddo got a bad break, but is that what you're gonna build your identity mm -hmm. on? Right. From, from now till kingdom comes? Mm -hmm. uh, or might we move on? Um, because this is not good for your soul if if it's if you're finding yourself in that place. Good point. That's good. Um, so Matthew 23, 12 says that he who exalts himself will be humbled, mm -hmm. but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm. Your message focused on the former, which the prideful being brought right. low. Can you speak to the latter, what it means that the humble will be exalted? Sure. Well, when it says the humble will be exalted, that means the humble will be exalted. So let's make it concrete. What would be an example of that? Well, certainly there's no finer example than Jesus. Mm -hmm. We learn in Philippians 2 um, about how this humble Savior came into the world, uh, leaving behind the privileges that he had of um, being God, taking on the form of a man, becoming flesh and blood like you and me, becoming one of us, he can relate to us, having a, a life here on earth, being tempted. And so he models this humility, he serves and everything like we were talking about in the message and goes to the cross. Does it get any lower than that? No, but then what does mm -hmm. God do? Raises him to life and he's our savior and the king and, and, and so. So there's an example, but you can find examples really all the way through. I, let's go back to uh, Joseph. Now, his father tried to exalt him, uh, maybe a little prematurely. Oh, yeah, and that didn't probably help things because he probably was a little proud about that. And favoritism is never a good thing in a family dynamic. And so he gets sold off in slavery and he goes down and, well, he was getting humbled, 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 mm -hmm. humbled, humbled. And now he's in the dungeon prison wondering, am I gonna spend the rest of my life there? Well, one thing or another, God exalts him. Uh, prior to that, I think of Moses mm -hmm. who had grown up the prince of Egypt and he had it so great and then he kills that guy and runs off in the backside of the desert and spends 40 years. And he thinks my life is over and I'm never gonna do any other significant things. And then God shows up in the burning bush and says, you're gonna lead my people. You know, and so uh, you can look at King David who was tending sheep. And then God says, no, you're gonna be my king. Mm -hmm. That guy is gonna be the king? Just little old shepherd boy, David, you know? And um, So you can go through the scriptures and you can find all of these instances, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these people that were, that went low, but then God would raise them up. Uh, certainly you move into New Testament times and, and you see the disciples, several of them came from maybe some privilege or at least some wealth, the tax collectors in particular, but you get the fishermen. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't get much lower than that. Now they're gonna be in the inner circle and we're gonna still talk about those fishermen 2000 years later in church and these sorts of, but even they, when they got with each other, what started sneaking in? Pride, which one of us do you like a little bit more than the others, Jesus? Which one's gonna sit on your right hand? And, you know, and so he even there had to deal with mm -hmm. the disciples um, uh, about that. In more modern times, I mean, I think of Mother Teresa. Well, there's a lady who, who went after the lowest of the low and the poor and the sick in India and just gave her life to, I don't, I don't think she had any PR 
agents that companies that were going around telling you know getting the spotlight on her but the world did mm -hmm. find her and the spotlight did find her um, I think of Corey Tim Boom who was off in the concentration camp why because she tried to protect some Jewish people during uh, the days of Hitler um, from from being extinguished and um, so she ends up in the concentration camp. Her, her family, some of her family dies, dies in the yeah. concentration mm -hmm. camp, but but then she comes out and has a story to tell, and she speaks around the world and became quite a famous person and, and was, you know, lifted up. Now she's in in glory. Um, but even she was asked that question: What do you do, Corey? Now that you've got this great story and you speak to stadiums full of people, and she said, "Well." Every compliment I get, I think of as a rose. And I put all my roses in a bouquet every night, and then I present them to the Lord, hmm. which is a good word. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, there's some examples. I think the, the objective for us is probably to set our sights on how can I put on the overalls of humility, mm -hmm. the clothing of humility Peter talked about. How can, well, what's that mean? That means it's a, who could I go after and serve? Um, not so that I'll be exalted, but just because that is what Christ did. I'll just give my life to serving. And maybe I'll never be exalted this side of heaven. Maybe no cameras will ever find me. Nobody will ever know my story. That's okay. God will. And he will exalt uh, in his good time. So I'm going to go after what he's called us to, to go after. That's good. And it's interesting that you brought up about um, the roses. Hmm. Because next question I have says, so as believers, are we supposed to walk through life never being acknowledged for the good things we do or accomplish? Yeah, well, I wouldn't... Uh, the question's asked in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the answer, I mean, one of the spiritual gifts, it, when you come to the four lists of, of spiritual gifts um, in Corinthians and Peter and Ephesians, is that gift of exhortation or encouragement. Mm -hmm. And so part of the, the, the giftedness of the body of Christ, the, some of the Christians are just really good encouragers. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they're good at is just giving you attaboys and, and making you feel like I can do this. To encourage means to breathe courage, to encourage life into another person. So obviously it's not a sin for encouragement to be given. In fact, it's a gift that he has put within Christians to give to one another. I think though the, the, the danger comes if we get out our Easter basket and start going from person to person saying, put some in my basket, please, uh, now. Tell me how great I am. Tell me what good things I've done and, and this sort of thing. I think that is now maybe turning into that, that, that pride thing. Maybe superiority, maybe it's inferiority. It can take either of those ways. That's good. Um, so this was our final message in the series yeah. on Esther. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a few more chapters left in the book. So can you talk a little bit about how the story ends and the significance of the events that come after? Sure, yeah, it, which is an interesting read. It's a little gory, uh, as lots of things were in Old Testament times. Um, so after... Uh, the scene that we talked about today, King Xerxes needs a new chief of staff. Obviously, Haman is gone. And so he says to his queen, Esther, well, why don't you lead the search team to find us the new chief of staff? Well, who do you imagine uh, she finds? Uh, none other than Mordecai. And so she reminds the king, now, you know, you did stamp this edict with your royal ring, um, this edict to kill all the Jews. Now, you didn't know what in the world you were signing on to because Haman had masterminded that. But the law of the Medes and the Persians is an irrevocable law. And so that law still stands in effect. And on this date, it's going to be bad still for us. And he says, well, then in that case, Mordecai, I want you to write a new law that will essentially supersede that law. And here's my ring. And you can stamp that one and set that in place. And <clears throat> so you can read 
uh, on your own uh, what happened, but it was a clever thing that Mordecai uh, did, and the Jewish people ultimately are saved. Um, and we're told that because of the events that unfolded, um, people even of other nationalities would come to convert into faith and trust in the one true God. So even roundaboutly, um, evangelism happens because of ultimately this beautiful young lady, Esther, who would become the queen of Persia. It's such a fascinating story. And it is. It is. And to see God's hand Mm -hmm. all the way through it, even when probably in the moment it didn't feel like God where are you? Right. And I can look back and see his hand through orchestrating yeah. all the which, events. Yeah, which is one mm-hmm. of the things scholars point out. You, you don't see God written mm-hmm. in the book, but the author was was clearly showing, oh, he's very much at work, which gives us a hint that he was writing uh, aware of the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And so he was uh, telling the story in a way that the believer could see, oh my gosh, only God. And yet he never mentioned God, but you can't miss him. Such a great story. It was such a great series. Thank you for that. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.